Again to the Good Trash Donnercast. We gather around a table and we talk about the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is about a little documentary about the life of Ozzy Osbourne called Prince of Darkness. Nice. I was wondering the origin of the bat bite. The bat bite. That's where it all comes from. Or it might be a John Carpenter joint about the end of the world and sort of sci-fi theology. And so we're going to be talking about that film here in a few minutes. But before we get any further, let's go ahead and identify the disembodied voices speaking to your brain. Uh, the man who looks like Wolverine. Uh, can you tell me a thing or two about who you are? I am Arthur Gordon, and the outside world doesn't want to hear this kind of bull crap. No, no, they don't. They really, really don't. But we're going to podcast it anyway. Uh, to my right, sir, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and only the corrupt are listened to now, and they only tell us what we want to hear. Very, very good. My name is Dustin Sells, and the Holy Ghost will not save you. The God Plutonium will not save you. In fact, you will not be saved. And I am so glad to be here talking to you all about John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Yes, that's the one. That's the one. It's like I, was, I almost said In the Mouth of Madness. I don't know why, because I think I'd rather be watching that movie. But nonetheless, uh, so here's what's going to happen in the course of this show, in case you're tuning in to the Good Trash genre cast brought to you by Good Trash Media for the very first time. Uh, we'll have a thumbs up, thumbs down review set from the three of us in which we will avoid spoilers altogether. And then we will have a game which will avoid spoilers generally. And then we will let all spoiler bets be off because this is no review show. Oh, no. This is an analysis show, and then we will spoil away as we offer analysis of the film Prince of Darkness. That time I got it right. See how I did nice. that? And so, without any further ado, let's go near a synopsis of the film from the voice of cinema, Mr. Arthur Gordon, in that great trailer voice. A research team finds a mysterious cylinder in a deserted church. If opened, it could mean the end of the world. That's very, very funny. You know, it's really funny you keep... We're making this joke about not remembering the name of the movie, but I guess in the uh, audio commentary, uh, when they sit down, he sits down to do the commentary with, um, I believe it's Peter Jason, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. I, I guess uh, when Peter Jason starts talking, uh, Carpenter forgets which movie they're talking about initially. And he thinks they're doing Ghosts of Mars, oh I think. Oh, my God. And then he has to quickly correct to uh, Prince of Darkness. That is hilarious. Oh, I yeah. love it. I love it. Well, you know, you make a lot of movies. Well, especially, yeah, yeah you're, you're talking about films that uh, didn't get commentary tracks until many, many years later, probably. Because yep. uh, he was probably doing the DVD commentary for uh, Prince of Darkness right around the same time Ghost of Mars was hitting DVD. Yeah. So uh, it was probably a busy day for him. Yeah. I, I, man, I heard not very long ago what the very first audio commentary was, and I cannot think of it. It was one of those Criterion laser discs, yeah. though. Was it Blade Runner? It might have been Blade Runner. I can't recall, so uh, don't hold me to that. Interesting. I, somebody dropped that factoid in a, in a conference paper I heard. And but obviously, it's a Criterion film. It's, it's definitely a Criterion. Yeah. Criterion were the first to really do it. Yeah, and it was and a laser so, disc. And it was a laser yep. disc That's for cool. the show. So, anyway, a uh, fun tidbit of fact. If you want to get that information to us via those magical means of social media, we'd love to hear about that. But without any further ado, let's go ahead and hear those thumbs up, thumbs down reviews of Prince of Darkness. I go to you first, Mr. Arthur Gordon. 
What say you? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Do you like Prince of Darkness? Um, why or why not? I enjoy Prince of Darkness quite a bit for uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, I don't think it resonates as well as some of Carpenter's other work. But I will say this is a master class in building dread um, yes. and building tension and unease and unrest. And his use of uh, shooting uh, insects uh, to build this and kind of rotting flesh and rotting meat and uh, the way he's building kind of tension throughout the film is just phenomenal, uh, I, I think. I think it's uh, maybe one of his more suspenseful works. And there's a really deliberate, really slow burn uh, into what we're going to uh, kind of unravel in the end. That being said, uh, for me, this film has a little too much plot for what he's doing. And uh, kind of spoiler uh, for some else's later, when I think of you know something like House of uh, House of the Devil or even Lords of Salem, which are kind of emulating what we're doing here, this really slow dread, uh, and then just balls out at the end of the movie, right? Um, I feel like he's really working with too much plot in the beginning, and we've got the science, and we've got fantasy or supernatural, and and it just feels like there's not a lot of i don't know there's just something off about the story for me and i don't really feel like that connects uh and he doesn't have a great cast of players donald pleasant's fun victor wong's fun uh but the rest are kind of just generic actors um i think walt warren or walter i can't think of his name uh who's with him walter walter uh, he's got a few comic relief moments but his delivery is really wooden and just never works for me uh when he's kind of trapped in that wall the whole makes time the jokes I'm seeing and it just him doesn't really work for me. And Victor Wong, I'm just thinking how much I wish I was watching Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so there's he's just not working for me here. Um, but that being said, I, I do think there's a lot of benefit. And, and just the, the production design, you know, they filmed this in a uh, – the they found this church in you know downtown L.A. or whatever, and it's a great outer uh, set. Uh, but the interior, the basement area, I guess they had found an abandoned resort uh, that had been out of use for a while. Cool. And it just looks fantastic. you know. And I watched uh, one of the special features on the Blu-ray. And Carpenter's waxing poetic about how lovely these sets were for that they found and were able to shoot on. And uh, it's true. That I, th I think it looks great. And we got the, that room where the, the canister is. And we got all those candles. And it looks beautiful. And so I think the you know production design and his his direction are all spot on. I, but just the the performances and the, uh, the the plot it's so plot heavy it just doesn't work for me. I feel like that kind of undercuts uh, this suspense that we're building up. But uh, I think Alice Cooper's a lot of fun uh, as the uh, one of the voiceless uh, street people, um, and uh, we get his little uh, stage gag uh, in the alleyway, which is great. Uh, and so there, there are a lot of moments to appreciate and a lot of uh, great shots and a lot of uh, great direction. And, and so I appreciate it quite a bit. Uh, so I, I'm pretty positive on it. I'm definitely, I think, a thumbs up. I don't think it's his strongest work, but I think it's definitely maybe underrated and definitely worth going out and seeing at least once. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what do you think? Do you like Prince of Darkness? Tell me why or why not. I, I'm kind of with there, uh, with Arthur on this one. Yeah, I, I, I think there is a lot to like here. I, I think it's really interesting in Carpenter's filmography, especially if you look at something earlier in his career like uh, uh, Assault on Precinct 13, which is this you know assault from without film, and this is an assault from within film, which I think is just kind of an interesting uh, remixing of ground he's worked on before. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of the general narrative conceit of this uh, 
meshing together of science and theology to save the world, I think is kind of a really cool conceit and a cool idea. Uh, this idea of using, um, without getting too far into spoiler territory, using um, extra extra dimensionalities and infusing that with uh, Christian mythos is kind of cool. Look, we all know the Catholic Church is the spookiest of all organized religions just because they have a bunch of really spooky iconography that's kind of cool to plaster on a wall. As that basement set uh, Arthur just mentioned um, shows us. I mean, that room is just full of these big candelabras and these big crucifixes. Uh, I mean, yeah, that entire set is really, really cool looking. I think it does a lot of legwork for them and, and, and the tension. Uh, I'm with you too, though, Arthur. I, I think there's just too much plot in the, the first part of this movie. But I think once uh, we get all the principal players in place in this uh, this abandoned church where they're trying to figure out the mystery of this canister, I think once we've got all the players in place, the movie really, really does come together. Until about the last 15 minutes, which I don't really care for at all. Uh, I kind of got bored with the last 15 minutes. But everything from yeah. getting there to the third act, I think, is really spectacular. And uh, I think you're right. I think it's it's kind of a forgotten Carpenter film. It's definitely not as well remembered as The Thing, which started off this, uh, this apocalypse pseudo-trilogy that he did. Um, and I don't know that I like it as much as In the Mouth of Madness, uh, which he would do a couple years after this film and close that trilogy out. But I, I think there's there's some really interesting stuff here. I love his score, which, you know, as Carpenter is often want to do, uh, he did himself. I think the synth score in this film is really, really good. Yeah. Uh, I, I Honestly, I think it's up there with Halloween. I, I think the, the synth score in this film is just completely underrated because the film is not as, as well known or well regarded as Halloween. So I think the score has kind of been forgotten about. But uh, I, I think the score in this film is is spectacular. I really love what he's doing here. It it really does kind of build on. It's this really uh, kind of like proto goth new wave thing that he's doing. With uh, look, he's a really talented musician, uh, and I I love that he found a way to to blend his love of music and his love of filmmaking together and just do both jobs. Um, so I, I like what he's doing here. I'm with Arthur. I don't think anybody uh, in the main cast is really that much of a standout. Uh, the female lead, uh, whose name I've forgotten, um, I, I do really like her quite a bit. Lisa Blount, Lisa the Blount. actress. Yeah. And Low rent, Reba McIntyre. Look, I, I, I'm going to disagree <laughs> with you. I think we could have used more of her. I, I think she's one of the better uh, younger actors yeah. in the film. And yeah. I, I could have used more of her because I think she's really compelling. Uh, but Donald Pleasance and Victor Wong are both fantastic. And I could have used a lot more of them uh, as well. And I think speaking to your point of uh, with Lisa Blount's character, I, I I feel like where the ending goes, I think we definitely should have used a lot more of her to Absolutely. really build that better. I, I think the film should have set her up to be the protagonist yeah, a lot correct. more. And I, I agree. I think that's uh, – uh, look, he's not the credited screenwriter, but um, he uh, – well, I guess he's, he's credited under a pseudonym. Correct. Mm-hmm. Carpenter wrote the screenplay. And I don't know uh, the pseudonyms for the score, though, isn't it? Martin that's for the script. That's okay. for the script. You know, okay. he, he credited himself for the score. Uh, I, I don't know if, if it was a reluctancy to to write a female protagonist. Uh, I think I don't know if he was like, no, I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm not going to overstep, and I don't, I don't really feel comfortable trying to do that because I might screw it up. Which, look, I, I got to respect that choice to play it safe. Sometimes when you you, you don't want to get stay, you want to stay in your lane. Oh, I'm, I'm Laurie Strode. Yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. exactly what I was about to say. Yeah. He's done it. He, he, he's yeah. done okay with it. And I, I don't think he should have been scared of it if that was what stopped him. Yeah. Because I think uh, having the splitting the protagonist bill between her, Pleasance, and Wong would have been really interesting. And having kind of them 
be three protagonists that played off of each other would have been really cool. Yeah. Uh, but look, it's we get this is the movie that we got, and uh, I think for for what it does, I think it executes it incredibly well. Uh, and I got to say, I can't for all of its faults, I can't think of anything quite like it. I can't. I can think of films that I, I that would pair with it interestingly. Yeah. But I can't immediately call to mind. Oh, this is a film that definitely does all of this better. I can't think of a single one. I because yes, there are elements of this film that have been executed better, but the elements that have been brought together and tied together uh, in this film, I really think, kind of stand on their own as this, a very specific experiment. And I, and I like a lot of what's going on here. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton. I also like the movie quite a bit. I think it's a lot of fun. I, I'm kind of, you know, all in for some sort of theological science fiction. Yeah, it's cool. Jaunt. I mean, yeah, that's fun, you know, and interesting to think about. It does feel like the film is like uh, 10 years too early. Like there was that big run of those theological thrillers uh, that happened in the late 90s. And it stigmata. If this film had come out two years before the film adaptation of The Da Vinci Code, it would have done gangbusters. Yeah, something if like that. If it had come that. out after the novel but before the movie, it would have cleaned yeah. yeah. And so it, it's just, it's weirdly timed, I think, mm-hmm. is, is part of why it's underseen. Well, it's also talking about a lot of science that wasn't yeah. like they, – they talk a lot about antimatter yeah. and, and like some quantum entanglement and string yeah. theory yeah. type shit that didn't like start to enter film consciousness until a couple of years later. And now is, you know, all the rage with uh, things like Interstellar. Right. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a little ahead of its time in that regard. A, a little bit for that. I, I do think uh, a lot of the acting is pretty weak. And I, and I, and I do think it's um, – as a horror film, it needs to be more Flatliners and less Friday the 13th uh, with the way it uh, terms those characters, you mm-hmm. know, because I, I believe them less yeah. as graduate students and more as just sort of overgrown kids at camp. Yeah. It's it, it sort of the way they play their, their their roles, and I think that's troublesome. Yeah, they're a little too silly. Yeah. And a little banter is good, but a little banter goes a long way. Yeah. So, like I said, uh, more Flatliners, less this, and you're you're almost perfect. You know, with uh, the characterization there. But otherwise, you know, a lot of fun. Uh, I think the biggest bit of fun for me, and I think I can say this now without going into analysis with it, is the ways in which it is sort of metatextual. It does this sort of Hitchcockian suspense, as Arthur has already mentioned. Uh, the use of insects is very, very Boonwell via David Lynch. So we've got Lodge Door meets uh, Bits of Blue Velvet. We've got uh, all just, that good mirror shit. Yeah, yeah, all that mirror stuff. All the, uh, you know, Donald Pleasant's character is a father loomis you know which is a great little throwback back to halloween and so there, there are interesting ways in which and it's intertextual within Har- carpenter's own filmography with yeah. uh, walter and victor wong all from uh, big trouble in little china uh some of these other characters being used elsewhere uh the the, the main character mustache looks like carpenter himself yeah and so there he looks a ton like john Carpenter. he yeah. looks like buff john carpenter right and so th- there are ways in which it really is sort of intertextually interesting and that makes it fun to watch but you sort of have to have that base knowledge coming in mm-hmm. to, to really enjoy that and again I, that seems like maybe part of the problem this film had finding an audience i i will say um i did watch this film with uh, dr fiance uh and uh, she loved it and not a huge carpenter fan doesn't have like a a really strong like metatextual uh, oh, carpenter good. yeah she she totally went for it so i think i think there's definitely something here uh for people who don't have like a strong footing on like carpenter's uh, oeuvre, uh ugh, as like a whole i i think you can you can this snack is appealing enough on its own you don't need yeah. other things to 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 broaden that understanding uh just to experience and enjoy it, I think. Right. But then it's just a fun 80s-tastic horror rock. Exactly. And, and that's really where it comes down to. It, for what it is, 80s-tastic with a little bit more thought, um, intellectually, you know, not, I wouldn't say deep or dense, but intellectually interesting. 
and it does all those things, you know, wrapped up with an Alice Cooper cameoed, uh, you know, a horror romp. Yeah, I'm all in. This sounds like fun. And so that I, I'm definitely pro. It's not my favorite Carpenter film. It's not my favorite horror film. It's not my favorite science fiction horror film. But I'm like, there's, there's nothing wrong with this movie. And uh, I mean, you know, there are things that I could quibble about and I would like to see better. But I'm like, you know what? I'm not mad about having to watch it. There's some very 80s touches that I could have done without. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There's nothing like completely just that that turns you off yeah it's not offensive in any way and so uh that is uh where i stand on it we're all generally pro in our approach towards prince of darkness yes that's right the good trash honor cast is for the prince of darkness i don't know what that says about us well you're you're on record saying it. Um, we are we are we are team anti-matter apparently um apparently no i don't know about that it's been fun to do these three films out of order because we have now officially this is the the last film in carpenter's apocalypse trilogy we've so done all we've of them. done them all yeah, yeah. it's been kind of fun to do them in a weird order and uh I, i'm excited that i i never thought i would see this or in the mouth of madness so it's it's fun that we got to uh do, you, you neither of you had seen this before right correct i, I have you had okay mm-hmm. how long had it been oh i don't know four or five years oh really okay so you found it fairly recently yeah not not too long ago okay but uh yeah i think this is fun uh we should mention that this was a, a patreon pick from our, our patreon oh, yes. contributor uh, brigham cole who is a huge carpenter fan um, and was one of the voices telling us that we should do In the Mouth of Madness. Uh, right. Was, he was a big reason we did that film in the first place, and uh, now we have closed out Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy, and I, th- I think we're better for it. Yeah, and we're going to have a conversation about that, and that's what this is all about here, and we want this conversation not just between the three of us, but rather with all of you via the magic of the interwebs. And so, Dalton, tell us how the interwebs can connect us all. Well, um, apparently very poorly. Uh, recently, there was a study done that showed, I think, 40% of adults uh, identify as having some form of depression. Um, and, yeah, so the Internet's making us worse. It's creating a hive mind that just makes us really, really fucked up. Uh, so, you know, use sparingly, uh, much like you would a tanning bed or cigarettes. Don't do it all the time because it's bad for you. But if you do want to use the Internet occasionally, we, we're on there. As it turns out, this is the this, the internet's the only place you can get the show. Uh, you can get in touch with us over on Twitter. Probably the easiest way to get a hold of us. That's at good underscore trash. Uh, that's not just going to be the good trash genre cast, but everything we're doing at Good Trash Media, we we try to do our best to keep you abreast of upcoming information over there at good underscore trash. You can uh, ask us what uh, we're going to be doing. Uh, you can tell us films you're curious to hear us talk about. Films you're going to see that you had opinions on. Whatever, that's at good underscore trash. Uh, we're also bringing back the gram uh, a little bit. Uh, we had an Instagram that's been inactive for a while, but uh, Arthur has been uh, doing the, the soldier's work of uh, trying to get that off the ground again. Ar- Arthur, what, what is that Instagram handle? Yeah, you can find us on Instagram at good trash media. Thank you for that, Arthur. Uh, yeah, I, I like. I've seen some of the posts that you've done. I, I like them. Uh, hopefully that that'll keep going. So if you're you're an Instagram user. That's at Good Trash Media on Instagram. Uh, we're on Facebook. Moving on. You can also send us emails. Uh, that's going to be GoodTrashGenreCast at gmail.com. If you have long-form feedback for us, if you uh, hate one of Dustin's takes, uh, more realistically, if you hate one of my takes, uh, send us an email. Tell us why we goofed. And uh, look, we'll probably engage with it in some capacity because uh, if somebody tells us we've done wrong, um, look, we're, we're going to listen to that. I, I think those, that's the kind of guys that we are. Uh, it's the kind of guy that I try to be. Uh, is to listen when people tell me I'm in the wrong. So uh, if you got long-form feedback, that's or if you just want to say something nice to us, we like that too. Uh, a great way to support the show is to just rate, review, and subscribe to us on Stitcher Radio or on iTunes. We're not on Spotify. I'm learning that people use that for podcasts. Maybe we'll look into that. Yeah, 
but we are on Apple and uh, on uh, Stitcher Radio. Rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It helps increase our visibility. It's a big deal. Um, most importantly, in terms of spreading the word, though, if this is something that you really like and uh, you, you appreciate what we do, uh, the best thing that you can do to help us out is just uh, tell your friends, tell your family, tell people you know that like film, that like podcasts about this show, because uh, that's the only way this grows, is uh, if you spread the word. We're, we're not going to advertise it. Uh, we're, we're not going to stand on uh, street corners handing out demos. Uh, this is the, although that is an option, Arthur made a face that made me think he might be I'm going to go it. hang out in the Walmart parking lot with my trunk open, just handing out handing CDs. Out, handing out CDs of episodes. You know what? I'm kind of into it. Uh, maybe we will hand out demos, but... If you want to help us out, listener, you can just tell somebody you care about that you think might be into the show. Uh, last but not least, this is a uh, you know it's a free podcast. We don't charge you anything, and we never will. Uh, but if you want to help us keep the lights on, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash GTM. There's some bonus content for you there. Uh, we're working on um, all kinds of things over there. Uh, we're actually going to be uh, doing that later today. We're going to record some Patreon content for you. So if you if you want some some more of these these dumb dumb voices uh, and also want to help us pay the bills, that's good trash on. Oh, that's Patreon.com forward slash GTM. There we go. Thank you very much for that, Dalton. Hey, I just got a message from the year one nine 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 saying that now is time to play the game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but damn the game if it don't mean nothing. What is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she got game, we got game, they got game, he got game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but fuck the game if it ain't saying nothing. And we are back to play the game like it's 1999. I stole that joke from Dalton Stewart. And we're going to play a game of favorite trilogies, spiritual or otherwise. That's right. Favorite trilogies, spiritual or otherwise. Brought to you by the Prince of Darkness. The Prince of Darkness. It's the penultimate entry in John Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy. And it it is the the most loosely connected trilogy. It's even more loosely connected than something like uh, the Dollars trilogy. Yeah, I, th- I would think it's probably fair. Yeah, it's it's thema- it's a thematic trilogy only, which is totally fine. I kind of like yeah. those. So uh, there you go, dear listener. We're just going to name some trilogies that we really enjoy. Because, and believe it or not, almost 300 episodes into the show, we haven't actually done that game yet. Yeah, and which is like the mode of making movies. I, I don't even know how we've managed to avoid it this far. But uh, anyway, here we go. So number first, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you select? I'm going to say the Mighty Ducks trilogy. Uh, Whoa. Yeah. Uh, they have been coming up a lot lately. Yeah. I, I, oh, I just love those movies. It's a nostalgia thing probably mostly. But uh, they're just so much fun. I don't care for the first one as much because it's trying to be this like early 90s serious bad news bears kind of, you know, family drama thing and it just it's okay but when they uh kind of just let loose and do uh two and three where it's just all kind of leaning right into the kind of camp and the moviness of it it's a kind of a live action cartoon thing going on yeah, they kind of turn into the x-men a little bit yeah uh, it's just it's a good time uh, and i think uh it's just a lot of fun and they got a great cast of kids and uh i i can uh, sit down and just watch all those movies through just about any time and just put them on and go through the whole trilogy and just uh, have some laughs. And I think that's uh, important sometimes. Uh, just kind of turn off the an- analytic side because they're not really ripe for analysis, but they are good for some laughs. Very good. Very good. Uh, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you for your number first pick? Uh, my first pick is going to be a pick that gets you both and. Uh, we, we talked about Edgar Wright not that long ago uh, when we talked about Baby Driver. And uh, a trilogy that I do like quite a bit is his Coronado trilogy. Uh, much like the Apocalypse trilogy, it's uh, mostly thematic, although there is 
the recurring uh, actors throughout, recurring collaborators on the screenplay. Uh, you know, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost being a, a big creative force on those films alongside Edgar Wright. And uh, much like uh, Arthur's Pick of Mighty Ducks, look, they're just fun to watch. They're really funny. They're really enjoyable, and they do lend themselves to a, to a lot of analysis. Um, but you don't have to. I think I think you really can just enjoy those films as works of entertainment. Um, and if you want to dig into them as works of art, that is also an option that you have available to you. Because I, I think we we don't need to go into it. We've talked about uh, I think all of those movies on the show. Haven't Correct. We? I thought so. We've hit every right. Uh piece of work that we can i think oh my god yeah unless we want to do an episode over space we did we did an episode over space yeah when we did our small screen september many years oh, ago show did. holy shit we've done the entire right canon the entire canon look uh there's a couple of directors we keep going back to and it's because they're kind of good trash auteurs in a lot of ways so yeah. uh there you go the three flavors cornetto trilogy Alrighty, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. My first pick is uh, the spiritual trilogy from Guillermo del Toro, which is The Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, and last year's The Shape of Water. The, I guess you'd say the beautiful grotesque trilogy, if you want to give it a name. The Fighting Against Fascism trilogy. The, yeah, the Fascism's Bad trilogy. Uh, the uh, Guillermo is Fun trilogy. The uh, Water is Kind of Scary trilogy. Um, there are many names one could give it. And uh, I just, you know, I love me some Guillermo del Toro. It's sort of, my, he was one of my beginning moments in finding my way into film stuff. Studies. And uh, this this has been a really really entertaining series of films for me, and I couldn't recommend them more highly. Moving on to our number next pick, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What say you? Here come the men in black, the galaxy defenders. Uh, I like the Men in Black trilogy uh, quite a bit, actually. Um, I think it rides heavily on one, which is just a great movie. It still holds up, I think, quite well. Uh, and, and it's just so good. Uh, Jones and Smith have such great chemistry together. And that movie is just mile a minute jokes. And it's it's a great uh, buddy cop and uh, fish out of water story. And it's doing a lot of really fun stuff. It dips hard with two, uh, which is a kind of weird movie. It doesn't have the same magic of the first one, but it's still good for a few laughs. But I feel like three really writes that ship again and comes back to a lot of the core from the first movie that was important. It has a lot of heart. It has some strong emotional beats with uh, Smith and Kay. I mean, those two characters uh, and how their stories kind of intersect. And, and it works out well there. And also, uh, Josh Brolin playing young Tommy Lee Jones is so good. pitch perfect casting. Yeah. It is brilliant. Uh, and, and so I think it, 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 you can get a lot of mileage out of that one. And I don't think it's as strong as the first one, but it's definitely a quite a step up from two. Uh, but it rounds out that trilogy nicely. And, and those character arcs and that emotional arc of, of K and J and, and their partnership. And it's got Michael Stuhlbarg in it. <laughs> He's great in everything. Literally. Very, He's every everything. Very good, very good. Thank he you. He was in me. like five Best Picture movies last year. Yeah, He's know. everywhere. He, it's wild. He's he, great. He, he brought me my pizza the other day when I ordered pizza. <laughs> He's everywhere. He's everywhere. You cannot escape him. Uh, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Literally. I mean, he is everywhere. <laughs> I, I'm going to say one of your dogs kind of looks like Michael Stuhlbarg. Dustin is Michael Stuhlbarg. Dustin, are you Michael Stuhlbarg this I, whole time? Yes, I am. Uh, Damn. <laughs> when sitting call him here by with his name and I'll call him by my... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what is your number next pick? Hi. My next pick, um, look, I'm sorry. I, I, I tried not to. I really did. Fuck it. It's the Matrix trilogy. I really tried not to talk about stuff, it because we've talked about it a lot. But apparently, I'm, I am now not the only one that's defending the rest of the franchise. Uh, and now that they're coming out of the woodwork, I want to... 
I want to stick my flag in here and say I am officially pro two and three. It took me many years to come around on them. I won't act like I was uh, on the ground floor of this this uh, second or what's the word I'm looking for. I'm pretty sure you denied them about three times before the rooster crowed. I uh, did. If I'm not mistaken, I, I think I, so. One hundred percent. I absolutely did. I denied them. I denied them, and I denied them, and. I'm here to say last year I rewatched the entire franchise. The Wachowskis ask you, Dalton, do you love us? And I denied them. Feed our films. I, I will feed. <laughs> I Dal- will. Dalton, do you love us? Feed the children our films. You know what? I'm going to because the Wachowskis, uh, just like Del Toro for you, were really fundamental in laying the groundwork for my appreciation of, of cinema. And uh, the more I go back to those other two movies, especially now, uh, in, in this day and age of uh, serialized uh, films, uh, you know, as as we, our our big budget uh, blockbusters start to look more and more like television. I actually very nearly selected the Captain America trilogy because I think those three are the you know the MCU being the model that all of Hollywood's trying to copy right now. I think those are the three individual films that work best together. I really do. I think they're the most consistent in quality across the board. But I, I think the Wachowskis really started this off in 99 through 2003 and 2004. Uh, or no, it was both the both of the sequels came out in 03, didn't they? It was like May and November, right? I don't remember. That was a long time ago. Uh, I can't remember. Or it uh, might have been November and then the following May. Anyway, at, at any rate, uh, they really did kind of prove to studios that this was a valid way of making films. And yet the world kind of turned on those movies. And I think... The world was not ready for a, a a superhero narrative that challenged the idea of superheroics, and I think that's a big part of what the second and third acts of that trilogy do. Is they they hand you a pretty standard uh, fighting against the system narrative uh, with superheroics, and then they complicate it and they complicate the idea of uh, of heroes of martyrs. They they complicate the idea of one person being the one, the only special person that can save everybody. They really go in and mess with that mythology and mess with the the ideas of good versus evil and uh, oppression and liberation and say things are often murkier than we make them out to be. And it's important to acknowledge that. And I think that's really what works so well about two and three. Least of all being some pretty fabulous action sequences in both of those films, uh, whether it's the still to this day legendary uh, highway chase and chateau fight in two, or it's the a little bit uh, technology not quite there for it, but defensive Zion in part three uh, and the uh, the final fight in uh, part three. Both of those, the tech wasn't quite where. Uh, I think the film needed the tech to be to execute those scenes, but there's a lot there that works, and the emotion is there uh, when the special effects are not. And, uh, yeah, I am here to go to bat for all three Matrix movies. Yes, the sequels are not as good as the first one. What a a wonderful, scorching hot take you have that two and three are not as good as one. Guess what? They never fucking are. That's just not it, – it, it happens once a generation does the second movie get to be better than the first one, and the third one is never great. These are the rules of trilogies. All righty. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, my next pick is uh, a, a series of films from Louis Boonwell, um, his last series of films uh, in France, The Phantom of Liberty, The Discreet um, Object of Desire, and also uh, Tristiana, um, which are three really, really interesting movies, uh, really, really compelling uh, just uh, I said I said Tristian, I meant Belle de Jour, the other Catherine Deneuve film. Sorry, Belle de Jour. Uh, Belle de Jour. Uh, yeah, you're going to have Liberty. to correct yourself when you're talking about yeah. Boonwell. I've only seen the one movie. <laughs> Belle de Jour, The Phantom of Liberty, and The Discreet Object of Desire. Those three films. 
And uh, they are uh, films about uh, surrealism. There are films about psychoanalysis in general. There are films about uh, capitalism and fascism. There are films about uh, possible communist revolt uh, still. And uh, they're really, really fascinating set of movies. There's uh, Boonwell working in French-language film, working back in France. He had uh, done a sojourn in Mexico after he began his career in France and made his way. He's a Spanish um, filmmaker uh, by nationality. Worked in Mexico for a while and finally found his way back to France. And it is in France, the third country in which he finds his voice. And so just a great little series of films. If you're interested in surrealism, if you're interested in uh, just a sort of European art cinema, if you're interested in Catherine Deneuve, which you should be, uh, these are films to be checked out and uh, a good time will be had by all. Moving on to our number one, number last picks. What say you, Mr. Arthur Gordon? Uh, well, I'm going to pick a franchise or a, a trilogy of films that kind of mirrors what Dalton was saying about the first film is great, the last film is usually the weakest, and that's the rules of the, the trilogy. Sure. I want to bring out the, the Wolverine trilogy, which starts... The big outlier here. ...on the weakest point is yeah. a rightfully maligned film. It's terrible. It, it is a god-awful movie. It cannot be redeemed. It cannot. There's nothing about it. The opening credits, maybe? Uh, Lee Schreiber. Yeah, Lee Schreiber's good. That's, You're right. That's it, probably it. Yeah, uh, every scene with him is kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, Lee Schreiber's just great. Uh, anyway, that's another. That's a tangent for another day. Arthur, you and me could just host a Lee Schreiber podcast. Uh, coming soon from Good Trash Media. He pumping. <laughs> oh, my. A Lee Schreiber podcast. <laughs> It's Lee Shrive and Meryl Streep. That's all we do. Just, they've only done the one movie together. Oh, we could just do both of their filmographies. Yeah. There's a lot more Meryl Streep to work with. Every week with. we pair them somehow. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, anyway. anyway yeah, get, uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine is a terrible film. And then we get James Mangold on board to do a sequel. And he does The Wolverine, which draws heavily from the, the Japan story and that, that history. And, and we kind of see... Uh, glimmers of greatness in this. Uh, the first two acts of that movie are incredible and really shape what we would see in, in Logan. Glim glimmers of greatness is a great way to put it. Yeah, too. Uh, and, and it kind of falls into the trap, the Marvel trap of having a really standard bad villain stock third act where if we have to go fight the bad guy. But this all leads up to Logan, uh, which just is is a phenomenal film. It's a masterpiece, I think, in a lot of ways, as, especially as a, you know, as a comic book movie. It's top tier. That's exactly what I was about to say. I mean, I, th I think you would be hard pressed to find more than two other movies that you could really reasonably say are at the same level as Logan within the, the superhero franchise genre. Yeah, and, and Logan really brings this arc of Wolverine, of Logan, to a poetic end and really deals and grapples a lot with the idea of, you know, living this tortured life and wanting out. And, and you know, there's no hope for Logan and everybody he loves dies and he has to see it because he's, you know, ageless and, and things like that. And so the way we get this kind of broken down cowboy out on his last ride, you know, just wanting to save his last friend is, is it's beautiful and it's poetic. And it's, it's just a great trilogy just from a production standpoint. It's fascinating uh, to see this play out, but also from a narrative standpoint, I think it just, it peaks beautifully and just ends on a great note. And so I would say the Wolverine trilogy. Excellent. I like that pick very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what is your number last pick? I, I just wanted to thank Arthur for uh, being able to uh, find the, the trilogy that breaks the rules uh, and, mm -hmm. and really does fundamentally shake up how we think about trilogies. There are very few times where I, you know, it, it's rare that we have a, you know, I can only think of two other franchises that start weak and then peak and go hard. And that's, uh, I think, Fast and the Furious and then Mission Impossible. Yeah. Uh, both which kind of have this. You know, Mission Impossible 1's good, 2's bad, uh, but 3 just kind of changes it, and then we just get some 
dope action movies after that. Just really some of the truly most spectacular action spectacle that has ever been seen. Yeah, and, and the same goes with Fast and the Furious. You know, the first one's all right. Two's what in the world. Three is Tokyo Drift. H- has its defenders, but yeah. is, there is an audit. It's the one I haven't seen, so it's I can't a, see It's an oddity to be sure, though. Yeah, uh, and then we get Fast and Furious, and then it becomes this massive box office success, and yeah. each movie's better than the last, and it's, it's a weird, yeah. Well, I, th- I think Justin Lin, uh, with that, with Tokyo Drift said, look, these movies are weird, but I think they could be better. And yeah. did and showed that they could potentially be better with very little money. Yeah. Uh, my, my pick, uh, as Arthur and I go down the rabbit hole of picking yes. apart the great action franchises of our day, uh, l- let's let's talk about uh, one of the few trilogies that has no action in it, because uh, a lot of them are known to. Uh, it's going to be Linklater's Before Trilogy yep. uh, with Julie Delpy and uh, Ethan Hawke, which... Look, are just three of the best films about relationships ever made. Uh, they, they really are quite good. And I, I think what Linklater is so good at is uh, just sitting you down with characters that you enjoy watching spend time together. Uh, writing characters that are specific enough that they feel real and fleshed out, but vague enough that you can attach uh, some ideas to them and, and start to think about how these characters relate to just all of our, our, our interpersonal dynamics. And I, I think there's something uh, really, really great about that. I mean, yeah, it, it is very much uh, films about times and places. Uh, Ethan Hawke in uh, Before Sunrise is the most 1994, uh, early 20s uh, white guy that you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And yet, I think there's something really good in that performance that, that does kind of lend itself to uh, the wanderlust, the wanderlust, there we go, of, uh, of your mid-20s. Uh, and I think all of these films, you know, getting to before sunrise, which I think is, or before sunset, which is probably my favorite of the three films, uh, and then in, on into before midnight, just tracking how relationships grow and change, and uh, and how the longer we know people and the more intimately intimately we know them, the easier it gets to make assumptions about the people you know and the people you love, just due to the amount of time you've spent with them. It's it's easy to uh, take people for granted sometimes when they're around you. And I think these films just do such a great job of illustrating that uh, so seamlessly. Mm. And so by accident, because there was no plan here. It was they did before Sunset, and uh, it was a modest hit, uh, you know, in you know indie cinemas when it came out in the mid-'90s and uh, gained this following over the, you know, the next eight, nine years. And they said, let's do another one. And then eight or nine years later, they said, let's do it again. Uh, and hopefully with any luck, eight or nine years later, we'll – We'll get one more. Uh, I, I would love to just keep revisiting these characters because uh, I, I love these films and I think about them all the time. Uh, so that is my last pick is Richard Linklater, Julie Delpy, and Ethan Hawke's Before Trilogy. All righty. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. My number last selection is another spiritual trilogy that is connected, you know, not, you know, narratively, but by a director. And it is the last three films from Andrei Tarkovsky, uh, looking at Solaris, Night Stalker, and Nostalgia. Uh, again, there are three films that are wrestling with uh, spirituality in the modern world, uh, two of them in science fiction type settings, uh, one of them in sort of a post-apocalyptic kind of setting, and all about sort of id and desire and how those things can break us and how they can also help us find a way to better understand ourselves. And I love me some Tarkovsky, and I could not recommend those nine hours of watching because, yeah, it's what it's going to feel like uh, more heartily. I love me some Tarkovsky, so what can I say? So there you go, dear listener. Uh, we just made a bunch of trilogy recommendations to you all most of them fairly on brand 
Correct. I, I think that's probably safe to say, yeah. 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 And so, yeah, check them all out and uh, tell us what you think, all of them. Um, you have till next week. Yeah, you have till next week to watch all nine of those movies. You have to quit all your jobs and uh, just watch movies. And, yeah, it'll be a good time. You'll, you'll, you'll think it's worth it. God, if only we should be so lucky. Oh, man, I wish I could. But nonetheless, I think it's now time to get down to business. Yes, business. Yes, business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh. Yes, business. Yes, business time. Michael Stuhlberg, what are you doing here with us today? <laughs> and we are back bringing some analysis to Prince of Darkness. Now, Arthur, you were talking about, you wanted to talk about something in particular with this film? Well, I just want you, you know, we've, we're trying to parse this for some analysis. It might be a little thin, but one of the things that came up, and I mentioned it to Dustin off air uh, before Dalton got here, um, but uh, one of the things that really kind of stuck out to me, you know, this movie comes out in, I believe, 87, so mm-hmm. it's right uh, in the kind of the late 80s and kind of the height of the uh, AIDS epidemic in America. And so that's something that really came to mind here, and Dustin mentioned, you know, that's kind of a goes hand in hand with zombies or vampires, but just the way it's framed with the uh, who's afflicted, who's uh, afflicted, and who's kind of got these symptoms or who's getting possessed, you know, the characters that are really dealing with that, uh, but also the way this thing is transmitted via bodily fluid, and so that was just something that I thought was interesting. I don't know if there's anything to it. Well, I think but... there is. There, there's definitely a gay subtext to the uh, first human to human infection. So we have our first character, Susan, you know, the radiologist in the glasses, who apparently no one can remember who she is, and they keep identifying her. The one with the glasses. It's, the a, the gl- it's a really great recurring It is. It is. Uh, but, you know, she's the first one infected, and she ends up crawling on top of the cot of uh, the uh, the could-pass-for-Asian uh, theology. <laughs> Sorry I called you Asian. There's some weird jokes in here, <laughs> man. Walter has got some fucking weird jokes. Yeah, yeah he does. Some of them... A Jewish girl un- went to South Africa. Some of them make me very uncomfortable. <laughs> it, 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 it's totally fair. But that scene reads, before she finally is like, uh, wait a minute, it, it reads very much like a... Uh, there's, yeah, there's a... a you've been thinking what I've been thinking. Th- kind there of is some uh, homoerotic context to it that is, is interesting within the confines of this film that also has a pretty gross gay panic joke. Right. Uh, well, two, that Walter sets up... So the joke gets set up fairly early and paid off a little bit later. The homosexual paranoia. Yeah, uh, for, for uh, Walter's character. And uh, look, it's the most late 80s joke. And I don't, I don't know what Carpenter's on with this. I don't know if he's working through... Uh, just some anxieties about uh, a pretty nasty uh, bodily fluid. Jesus Christ, I'm bad at talking today and also this, bad at science words. Uh, I'm not the one you, in my relationship, you come to talk to about science. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, sure, maybe he's working through some general anxiety about a, a pretty intense pathogen being out in the world mm-hmm. and nobody seeming to want to do anything about it, uh, at least nobody in positions of power at this point in history. Um could it be completely and utterly coincidental? Eh, probably. Uh, but that thing, these sorts of things were bouncing around in people's uh, consciousness at this time. Um, but I, I, I think the juxtaposition of the, the potential for commentary on the AIDS epidemic with uh, the homoeroticism, with the not particularly uh, empathetic uh, gay panic joke, uh, th- those three things together paint a really bizarre picture for me uh, and make Carpenter kind of confounding and hard to understand where he's coming from. Because, again, we uh, we talked about this last week on the show with Nick Sanford. We, you know, we try to stay away from uh, 
you know, author's intent and uh, auteurism as much as we can because they're easy to fall into and easy to get reductive with your film arguments when you enter the, those spaces. But it does make Carpenter kind of hard to reckon with in this film. For, yeah. for me, personally, I don't know about you guys. I know, I, I do agree. I do think there are ways in which it sort of works, though. Uh, if you are thinking about some apocalyptic kind of, you know, infection that's coming, uh, the way in which uh, sort of the identity of the AIDS victim worked in the 80s, uh, which was, I mean, I was around and alive, you know, during the whole panic. And, we know. And uh, and so, you know, we, I, I mean, I was like in, in early middle school, early, early elementary school, rather, and I was hearing things about HIV AIDS and then, you know, how to avoid it because, I mean, there was a real panic, you know, third grade, fourth yeah. grade Dustin is hearing about how not to get AIDS. Yeah, I remember even in the ni- early 90s when yeah. I was in grade school, I remember. Yeah, same, all the way yeah. up into, I mean, that was concurrent, uh, that, that sort of education was concurrent with the D.A.R.E. education. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I think I was the last generation of, of school children to get that, those two educations. And it was painted in such a way. I mean, it felt like, I mean, I was more likely to get AIDS than I was like the chicken pox or something. Right. You know, the way it was kind of approached in schools. Yeah, and so, I mean, but here's the thing. the, the There is a way in which uh, AIDS victimization becomes pretty faceless. Um, the closest it ever gets to facedness is the homosexual, the, the the gay person. And so we do have characters that we know um, that, again, have this sort of uh, homoerotic context or subtext it, that we see being infected and then sharing that infection uh, between one another. But we also have the uh, the lurkers on the outside, right, which are the, the, the massive wave of those who were infected with HIV AIDS were those um, who were transients from, transients from or, margin- became, or became transient marginalized populations, the homeless, mm-hmm. etc. And they are faceless, nameless, speechless, voiceless. Right. And so there are ways in which it really does work very well. Uh, with it, and then it gets very tragic if you read it further, though, because then they all just have to die, yeah. right at the end. The way in which we solve it is that we kill them all, which is stuff I was hearing. I mean, I heard people talking just madness sort of stuff, like we can't let these people alive because what about mosquitoes? Mosquito bites one of them, and they bite one of you. Mosquito didn't clean his needle either, and I'm just like, are you? Se-? I mean, now I'm like, are you serious? I mean, when I was ten, I was like, <sighs> lay gasp. Do, yeah. Do Do I need to you know stay away from a person who's got AIDS? You know, and and so. Fear, fear makes people act like assholes, right? Uh, and that is what is important to remember. Yes, and so yeah, I think there is definitely a way of reading it. I do, and as Dalton said, I don't know that it's really part of uh, Carpenter's intent. No, I don't. I don't know that it's intentional, but I do feel like it's there. I, I think these things were probably swirling around in, in his yeah. brain because they were swirling around in everyone's brain. Yeah. And th- intent, regardless of intent, they do end up on the page and on the screen. Um, the thing that I find most interesting about the transients is the choice to make um, – there is a passing reference made to uh, schizophrenia of the homeless um, and the idea that um, these uh, mentally ill homeless people are more in tuned to um, what's really going on, more in tune to the second layer of reality. Uh, and this is an idea that, that gets brought up. Uh, Touched by Fire is this book about uh, creativity and mental illness throughout history. Uh, there's a lot of writing about this that I, I'm not well-read enough to really talk about, but this is not a new idea is all I wanted to point out. The idea that um, people who society writes off as mentally ill uh, might have a little firmer grasp on things than they get credit for, and if we spent more time trying to lift up and understand uh, people with severe mental illness, then uh, maybe it wouldn't be so severe. Uh, And then again, this is not a new idea that I'm presenting, but I think it's interesting that 
that the film tries to work with this, it doesn't do so very cleanly. It does turn these mentally ill transients into a horde of zombies keeping everyone in the building. Uh, as, as you said, they are voiceless and nameless uh, and without agency, right. which is, you know, kind of an issue. But this is also a, a, a pretty campy uh, horror film. Right. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. This is not trying to be serious, and yet we should always take serious things seriously to some extent. Um, but but I think Carpenter does have an affection here for the idea, at least, that uh, we marginalize and ignore people uh, with mental health issues uh, at our own peril. Not our own peril, at our own um, our own misfortune, uh, because it says a lot about our society when we are not willing to better understand people who are um, off the beaten path, uh, as Carpenter himself would probably identify as, you know, being out of the norm for the society that he grew up in. Uh, and I think that's something about his films that I, I've always really liked is as schlocky and violent and silly as they are, there is a lot of sensitivity yeah. uh, towards people who are living on the margins, uh, whether it is, you know, transients or artists or, you know, whoever, whoever uh, you, you finds themselves marginalized by society at a given point in history. Carpenter's got a long history of working in film, and I think most of his films that I've seen anyway do a pretty good job of trying to engage uh, with uh, the stories uh, of people that a lot of storytelling at the same time are ignoring. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, another thing I did want to talk about was uh, the sort of – again, I don't know that it's really a wrestling with uh, this issue as much as it's just simply indicting it as bad and moving on, which is – Enlightenment metaphysics, right? The idea of the age of reason. There is a huge skepticism to the sort of reason-only methodology that sort of follows the Enlightenment. And uh, Victor Wong's got a great line about your continued commitment to reason is uh, dogmatic, right? And that it's just as dogmatic as, say, a religious dogmatism uh, may become. And it does work into this sort of there is more to the life or, or the world than reason, all the things that we can see, hear, taste, and touch. There, there's mystery there, but also uh, not just an unequivocal sort of falling into uh, you know a, a sort of theological schema like the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, I, I do love the way in which sort of new science uh, does this kind of work, where it's no longer simply uh, you know this means that you know plug A into B, this Newtonian kind of physics, uh, which is the sort of rationale of the Enlightenment, but rather there is um, a way in which Victor Wong's character, the scientist, does sound like a wild-eyed mystic, somebody who's come off the mountain, right? And uh, says, you know, we don't know what's going on here, and there are ways in which these things are substantial and insubstantial. There are ways in which, you know, uh, light does this crazy thing where it acts like both a particle and a wave, and the way it, reason why it acts the way it acts is based on who's observing it. Right, and what you're looking for. So if you look at these photons that you're scattering against this uh, cardboard wall with slits in it, and you're looking for particle behavior, the back side of the slits ha- demonstrates particle behavior. But Im- immediately when you start looking for the photons to behave wave-like, it does that in your observation, which means that the very act of watching changes the sort of construct of the universe, and which makes one wonder, how does the universe uh, able to be held together unless there's some one watching and the watchedness is, is, is part and again this is this is what uh quantum physicists sound like yeah uh, and, when, and nobody does uh 
wild-eyed monologues better than Victor Wong. That's true. He's one of the only things I like about Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, oh, oh. Yeah, you remember this. I you know. were mad about it when it happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dalton was real upset that that was one of our higher listened to episodes for a long time. The fact that that episode was more listened to than our Silence of the Lambs episode for years uh, caused me no end of anger. Uh, look, I just don't see the appeal. Uh, there are moments I like. But anyway, Victor Wong is great. Yes, he's and, great. And, and, and as Dustin said... When you get uh, quantum physicists talking about these things, it does sound a little wild-eyed and like, the end is nigh, and but in a fun way. Right. Uh, and Victor Wong sells that very well. And I think you're right that it's cool that um, this is fairly um, new science in terms of talking about it with lay, lay people. Uh, so it's, it's cool that uh, Carpenter brought it into the film in some capacity. And, and what it does is interesting. It's like this embrace of mystery and mysticism, but it's also at the same time rejection of institutionalization, right? And so uh, Father Loomis is a priest character who's only credited as priest in the film, but we find it out from a line of dialogue that his name is Loomis in connection with Halloween. But uh, that his, you know, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church is not is not painted in a, a favorable or particularly sympathetic fashion. They see what's going on. They understand some things. They have some connect, connectivity to truth. But but their institutionalization is sort of the fundamental break in that. And so it, it does not go into a sort of this religious dogmatic sort of realm where sometimes uh, horror films can become very, very conservative theologically, right? And it's like, you know, well, what you need is a good priest, a priest who really believes that way you can cast out the evil, right? Because you need all that doctrine and tradition. Nor does it fall into this purely enlightened scientific kind of thing where it's rejection of all that is supernatural. It is an embrace of the mysterious at the same time a rejection of the institutional, the hierarchical, that which is sort of a power structure that can be used for exploitation. And that I find to be interesting. I don't I don't know that's really dialoguing with it as much as it does that, and that's neato. I think you're right. I think it just does that. But it's important that we continue to say, look, nobody has it all figured out because anytime somebody says, well, being rational is the only way to figure things out, that's how you get dipshits like Jordan Peterson saying, well, if we enforce monogamy, incels won't kill people. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. But that's why it's important to, even if even if we're not really commenting on it other than to say this is bad, it's important to have a film that says there's no right way. There's no one way to do anything. Mm -hmm. Everything is about synthesis and dialogue and deconstruction and reconstruction. Or dialectics, one might say. Exactly. And they could break bricks. Dialectics can. What is it? That's a... It's you, a kung fu movie. Thank you. I knew that was a reference to something because I've heard you bring it up before. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything going on with that other than commenting on it, though, yeah. for me. Uh, well, is there anything else that's just brimming in anyone's minds regarding this film? Oh, one of the things I think we could talk about, and I was, like, I, you know, I, I was watching some of the special features, and, and Carpenter was kind of talking about... Um, he got burnt making Big Trouble in Little China, which he did right before this, uh, which is a studio film. And he really got burnt working with the studios. And so this is uh, something he wanted to do. He wanted total control of and, uh, you know, made this lower budget film. And, and I think it's interesting to look at in his filmography because really outside of They Live, which is, I believe, the follow up to Prince of Darkness, he doesn't make anything post Big Trouble in Little China that really has cemented his name as much as the earlier work. And so I'm just kind of curious about, you know, do you think having a studio here would have helped or hurt this film at all? I mean, does it get made at all, you know? And, and does rebuking that kind of studio sponsorship, you know, later in his career, does that, you know, do you think we would have gotten more, I guess, I don't know what I want to say solid, but more um, 
recognizable carpenter works that people would know. You know, people know the thing. They know Halloween, but, you know, people don't know In the Mouth of Madness. And so I'm just kind of wondering, you know, where his relationship with the studio was, would have taken him if he had kind of stuck with that or, or gone back to studio filmmaking. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think the film itself would have been less interesting because I think it would have been more clear cut. And I think that would have hurt the film. I think part of its appeal is its ambiguity, right? And so I, I think, you know, regarding just Prince of Darkness, I think it would have been bad for the film to have been studio produced. Uh, for Carpenter himself, though, I think he is a director, a genre film director, that could have worked very well in the studio system. I don't know what the particularities are of his issues uh, working out Big Trouble in Little China. But um, what I would say is that uh, he is a, a very, very adept hand at genre filmmaking. Uh, he's able to work with stars. He's able to uh, elicit good performances. He's able to put together some really, really interesting stuff. And I think that additional monies behind him would have aided him quite a bit. Uh, he's, uh, he's a director whose career I would like to have seen gone otherwise uh, in that I think he could have been doing sort of, you know, uh, like the, I don't know, the, the hard edge, the hard R Steven Spielberg kind of work, you know. I think you're absolutely right. And I think uh, I, I think Arthur and you were both right, though, in suggesting that working with studios might have allowed his, his later output to kind of have the staying power that Halloween and the thing have had. Uh, I, I think maybe the place for him to have gone was to continue to foster those relationships with big names he had, like with you know with Kurt Russell and Keith David, and continue to foster those relationships and use those relationships with actors to bring the money. Um, because w having dabbled in studio filmmaking, he had the relationships in place, I think, to make the money come to him. And, and I think he got so burnt that he didn't want any part of it uh, because he didn't want to risk losing that control because – Look, I, I get it. I imagine what probably happened with Big Trouble is, you know, a loss of control, and it made the film something he didn't really want it to be, uh, potentially. And I think that um, there, there's a, a possible outcome where he could have uh, gotten the resources that uh, working within the system would allow him, uh, but still maintained his control. And I, I think doing that would have been, you know, setting up his own production company probably and making the, you know – bringing those relationships with him to the extent that he's got actors that want to work with him because he makes fun movies, and then using those actors to make money come to him and outsource distribution. But, you know, I get it. If you get burnt, you're like, no, I want to make my movie, and I don't want anybody to tell me yeah. how to do it. Um, but at the same time, when you say, I want to make my movie how I want to make it, and I don't want anybody to tell me what to do, I think it's easy to lose sight of it being a collaborative process. And anytime somebody tells you, uh, that might be a bad idea. There's probably a cleaner way to do this. You're resistant to other people's ideas. And look, you get burnt by a studio, it's easy to be resistant to other people's ideas, even if they're coming from purely a good place, not a, not a money place. This raises a curiosity for me, and I don't know that we're going to have the answer to this. I mean, this is this is We harder. rarely do. This is harder than a simple Google. But um, I'm wondering uh, what his relationship was to the independent studios, because these are developing um, at this moment. And so we've got New Line already at work with that house that Freddie built, right? Um, the, the Weinsteins are, are putting Miramax together, and they're about to drop that Dimension label, which is where they do their genre filmmaking. 
and um, and that's where Craven gets in. And yeah, Craven, yeah, and he's got this great staying power, and that, and he's able to transcend it. But he's able to do that via these again, sort of independent studios, which is a, a, a strange sort of misnomer kind of yeah. place. The, the, the major minors or the minor yeah. majors, however you want to phrase it. And I wonder um, to what extent he was able to insinuate himself because I can't imagine him not having made a dimension film. I can't imagine him not having made something for New Line. Yeah, we'd have to look at you know vampires or Ghosts of Mars because I, I, I feel those have to be studio, but I don't know. Yeah, I, they may be bigger uh, studio. I though. think Ghost of Mars was a studio film. Yeah, uh, but it, it yeah, looks like a. Stu- I mean, sounds it, like a studio film. Absolutely. Um, it's a damn shame that you know, uh, Carpenter or uh, Craven got Scream, but we never got Carpenter's equivalent of Scream. Right. right? Yeah. We never got yeah. the the film that was like a commentary on the rest of his career, the way that we got it for Wes Craven. Um, and I, I think you're right, Dustin. I think it was just this much too early yeah. because, you know, 94, uh, the, the, the Sundance of 94 really kind of, you know, with, uh, clerks and sex lies and videotape. Well, that's 89. I mean, that's, that's, oh, that's, 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 that's no, 89. Are you sure? That's absolutely no. certain. He took a class on that. I'm that's right. Uh, you're absolutely right. I'm thinking of something else. I was actually thinking of 92. Um, but you're right that those, but uh, anyway, 89 through 94 mm-hmm. is a huge, huge couple of years for independent filmmaking being a viable place to get some of that bigger money right. and maintain creative freedom. Uh, and, and I think it's just this much too early for Carpenter. I, I think he, he wanted to get out of the studio system right before there was a, a viable second way. At yeah. That point. And again, this is, I mean, the Indies are not the studios, but they are it's sort of structurally in some ways. They're studio adjacent. Though in terms of, again, spirit and uh, the ways in which the financing itself is achieved, uh, it's, it's, it's comparable in many ways. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, it, it is a different animal. But, yeah, I'd be curious to see, um, again, the sort of Wes Craven trajectory with a John Carpenter and just what he was able to do. Are you able to find that information? I mean, it's too no. – yeah, it's hard. a lot of wicking I'm going to have to do. Yeah, yeah. It, it's harder than a simple Google yeah. uh, on that kind of thing. But I imagine that uh, if he would have worked well or played better in those – uh, sort of circumstances, I think he could have transitioned better into studio filmmaking. Yeah, uh, you know, in that sort of late career kind of stuff, like what what Wes Craven did. So, uh, excellent stuff. Good point. I'm glad you brought it up, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Uh, okay, well, I think that probably wraps up our discussion of uh, John Carpenter's. I almost said Wes Craven's. <laughs> oh my goodness, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. We now come to a point in the show where we must render a verdict regarding this film, though. Shelf or trash? Else or instead? I go to you first, Dalton Stewart. What do you say? Shelf or trash? Else or instead? Prince of Darkness. <sighs> Pressure's on. Yeah, I'm. I can't shelf this. It, it's good. I like it. Um. I can't see, like, beating somebody's uh, door down to make them watch it. Much like The Village from last week, if you are a Carpenter fan, you definitely need to catch up with this. Uh, Just like I said last week, if you're a Shyamalan fan and uh, think you don't like The Village, you should probably give it another shot. Um, But, yeah, I I can't recommend anybody who's not into Carpenter seek this film out. Um, If you really, really like Carpenter, Catholic-flavored horror films, you should probably check this out. If you like science fiction-flavored horror films, you should probably check this out. There's a lot of cool stuff in here, but I can't say it's essential film watching. What should you watch instead? I am going to say In the Mouth of Madness, which I actually like quite a bit better. I would say that film is essential because it's that fucking weird and that silly and that fun. And I, I think it's just a better summation of what I think Carpenter wanted to do here, which was... Yeah. This sort of meta, you know, postmodern apocalypse uh, story uh, that had its its feet in, you know, sci- both science 
uh, and mysticism and, and, and weirdness overall. Uh, and I think in the Mouth of Madness, uh, using the Cthulhu kind of H.P. Uh, Lovecraftian mythos in, in the Mouth of Madness uh, works a little bit better than this uh, science theology fusion that we get in Prince of Darkness. I wish there was a better science theology fusion film. I wish there was another movie where we talked about things like the anti-god and the, the, the dark realms and mere portals and stuff. There's a lot of cool stuff in Prince of Darkness, but I cannot I cannot say that you have to seek it out. But if you want something that's kind of adjacent, I think In the Mouth of Madness is a great place mm-hmm. to go. Uh, in addition, I think uh, a great pairing would be uh, The House of the Devil, uh, the Ty West film that we're all really big fans of. Uh, Arthur mentioned it earlier in the show. Uh, I, I think that's a film that would that works really well here in terms of the ways in which suspense is built uh, and, and the themes at play. Uh, and I think that film's just a, a lot tighter uh, and has a better handle on its limitations and uh, uses things more effectively. Uh, finally, uh, I'm going to say my favorite film about uh, the future trying to save the past, and that's T2, Judgment Day. Nice. Um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, James Cameron is influenced by uh, John Carpenter in a lot of ways um, in terms of... Uh, taking Carpenter's kind of weird out there ideas and marketing them in a much more studio friendly way. Um, yeah, I, I think those are, those are essential films that are playing in similar fields as in, uh, Prince of Darkness. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not essential viewing. So th- those are films that I would recommend you check out before you check this out. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. Mr. Dalton Stewart, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say? Shelf or trash else or instead? Um, I think I will put it on the shelf. Just lightly set it on the shelf. Um, you did, didn't you? I did, actually. I've got a beautiful still book of this from uh, Sh- Sh- Shout Factory, Scream Factory. I can never get their name right. I think it's Shout, Shout Factory. Factory. I've got several movies from them, but I can never think of the name. But, uh, yeah, uh, and they do some great work with uh, li- still books and limited edition uh, DVDs and things like that. And they've got a lot of Carpenter stuff. They did about five still books, and then they've got some uh, revamped uh, stuff coming up within the Mouth of Madness. They're doing a new version of that later this year. Sweet. Um, so I'm excited about that. Uh, but yeah, I'd lightly put it on the shelf. I, I think there is just something very unique about uh, the plot, and, and you know, Dalton mentioned this of it's not quite like other things. You know, it draws from other things, and other things draw from it. But you know, this kind of unique uh, science religion horror mashup that it does is really unique. Um, and it's also, like I said, I think it's just a masterclass in building dread and suspense, and mm-hmm. I, I think it's key in, in doing that. Uh, because we see that bomb put under the table and we watch it just for 90 minutes to see how it un- unfolds. Um, but with it, I, I think, you know, to understand Carpenter and understand what he's doing, um, you got to go back to his influences. And, and the biggest influence, he quotes him in this movie, and, and that's Howard Hawks. And so I think you've got to watch Rio Bravo, uh, yeah. which is really kind of setting the stage for these siege movies he would do later. And then I think you uh, pair that with uh, Night of the Living Dead, uh, which works well here and then finally you finish it with assault on precinct 13 uh which after five and a half years i finally watched and loved uh it's good it's rock solid um but yeah i i i I see a lot of assault uh in um prince of darkness and some of that siege element we never get the full siege but we get those elements of you know the people kind of Mm -hmm. coming up around and the nameless uh warriors from assault on precinct 13 kind of reflect the uh the voiceless uh uh, homeless people that we get here. Um, but I think those three films really seeing kind of where Carpenter comes from and his influences uh, and, and leading up to this, I think is important. And uh, he's a huge Hawks fan. So I think you got to get some more Howard Hawks in your life. Uh, I'm trying to, uh, and he's good. So uh, it's a good that. idea. 
Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I'm also going to say Shelf because it would go on my shelf. It's it's the yeah. kind of movie that I like and I enjoy, um, although I do realize your mileage may vary uh, just based on your own individual taste, as Dalton has already put out there. Um, I think in terms of a predecessor in dealing with the modern era and the theological, you got I, – I do not like this director, but I think you got to look at Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. I, I think it, it is a really, really interesting sort of wrestling with the same kinds of questions and the coming of the Prince of Darkness. Uh, in different ways and, and with, with some some sort of name dropping, not really conversation with Friedrich Nietzsche. So uh, there's something very interesting going on there. Also, I think you'd have to take a look at my favorite of the uh, late 90s uh, theological thrillers, and that is Bless the Child. And so uh, I know you like that film. Yeah, I like that. Of, of the sort of three or four of them, there's End of Days with Schwartz, there's, there's Stigmata, uh, Stigmata. Stigmata. Uh, I feel a couple like more. Fallen is sort of earlier, yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. Sort of part of that sort of yeah. uh, The Omen remake kind of on the tail end of yeah. that. Yeah. But I, re- I really like Bless the Child a lot. And uh, so I would recommend it pretty highly. And then I'm going to recommend a documentary in which uh, John Carpenter functions as a talking head, and that's Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue. Yeah. yeah. And it's a very, very good yeah. horror film documentary. Carpenter says some great things, but lots of people say a lot of great yeah. things. And it's a great sort of anthology view of the horror film in general. And uh, so I would recommend it uh, very highly as well. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got longer. And so, yes, we have come indeed full circle. Our very first episode of the Good Trash Genre cast was Assault on Prince. 13, directed by John Carpenter, and this is John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, finishing out the Apocalypse trilogy, so we're done, right? That's it. I think we can call it a career. No, actually, it turns out we're going to do one more episode. Or are we going to do one more show? At least but one wait, more show. wait, there's more. This uh, one's a screamer. This one is, in fact, a screamer. Uh, all this talk of trilogies has got us thinking. And it's, you know, yeah, so we want to do something on a trilogy, I guess. Dalton had this wild idea. I don't even know where it was birthed out of, but Ridiculous he said, hey, idea. what if we watch took time sat down and we watched the entire sam raimi spider-man trilogy every once in a while i have a good idea and we said yeah why not the because there's a lot there that would be fun every once in a while i look i say a lot of dumb shit off air i say a lot of dumb shit on air but every once in a while i will say something and dustin arthur will give me this look and i'll be like i got him but we can't let on that he's doing something right and we can't we can't uh, vindicate him in any way but, yeah, so we have a lot of homework to do over the next yeah, week. Yeah, we, uh, we are going to watch about six and a half hours of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, uh, some good, some bad. Uh, we get to see uh, uh, Tobey Maguire dance. Uh, we get to see the evolution of the modern superhero franchise. Yeah, uh, we're going back almost directly to the uh, the roots of the latest cycle. You know, X-Men, uh, Blade, I would say, actually, actually kicked yep. that off. But Blade, X-Men, and Spider-Man are kind of the three that lay the groundwork. Yeah, they're for the sure. uh, forefathers for the MCU, I'd say. You Absolutely. Know? Um, and this cycle. And so we're going to go that, and we've kind of kicked around some ideas is for maybe coming back to this later in the year and doing another trilogy of superhero films but uh yeah spider-man we are going to get into it i'm excited i love doc ock he's one of my favorite characters um that performance uh he's so uh. yeah all right well i'm gonna be there so uh he's not gonna watch the movies though (laughs) he's just gonna show up here's what we do Dalton, you watch Spider-Man. Uh-huh. I'll watch Spider-Man 2. Dustin, you watch Spider-Man 3, wow. and we'll meet back and compare notes. You know, I thought you loved me. <laughs> but now I know better. Hey, Thomas Hayden Church is money. Thomas Hayden Church is good in that movie. Apparently, I, now, I haven't seen Spider-Man 3 since I saw it in the We, we may be the group. I have never seen Spider-Man 3. There You've never a, seen it? Never. <laughs> I think you might like it, because there's this new school of thought that it's actually good. Here's the thing. We, uh, we're going we're gonna to be the group. We're going to be the, the powerhouse that says Spider-Man 3 is worth revisiting 10 years later. We are? I, I think we could eh. be. Uh, I'm here to say, uh, having watched half of Spider-Man 1 as of this recording, 
I don't like the first half of that movie as much as I remember. Um, so we'll see. I might. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man, uh, the first in the reboot, is also on my voodoo. So if we get around to watching that, that might happen. That is well. not going to happen. For I me. might try to get it in. Oh my! Well, I'm... you always do the most homework. All the Spider-Man, all the time. Yep. I just watched Homecoming recently, so I don't need to watch that again. But I'm going to I'm going to watch a lot of Spider-Man uh and it's Spider-Men. Spider-Men and uh we're going to have a good time and we're going to have a conversation about that film. You're going to have a conversation. We just had a conversation about Prince of Darkness because that's why we do what we do is what makes watching the movie so much more fun. So you keep watching, we'll keep talking and we'll see you all next time. Thanks Michael Stolberg. Tuning into the Good Trash Honorcast. The Good Trash Honorcast is a product of Good Trash Media. For more info on everything Good Trash, head on over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro music, as always, is an original composition by friend of the show Aaron Rodgers, and our outro music this week is Prince of Darkness from the titular film Prince of Darkness by Alice Cooper.